And we are live. Greetings to our loyal WFYL listeners around the world. Welcome back to your Philadelphia live stream only on the Freedom Station. I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in once again, because you still have the right to hear and the right to be heard. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Mike G. As always with the Philly Chris, Russ, the producer and Liberty Lee. And you're listening to Mike G in the morning with the law matters. And you can listen to our program every Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern only on the Freedom Station. W.F.Y.L. So let's be heard. I want to remind our listeners that you can participate in the free and open exchange of thoughts and ideas throughout the entire week by visiting MikeGinTheMorning.com. What's it called, Philly Chris? MikeGinTheMorning.com. How about you, Russ? MikeGinTheMorning.com. Liberty? MikeGinTheMorning.com. Special guest, Guy Smith, what's it called? MikeGinTheMorning.com. That is correct, sir. You can check out all the shenanigans that Mike G and Philly Chris are up to throughout the entire week and check out our social media profiles. Don't forget to like this video and subscribe to our YouTube channel. So tell your friends, tell your family, tell your barber, tell your Uncle Jerry, tell anybody who listened to check us out at MikeGinTheMorning.com. I also want to remind our listeners about the powerhouse lineup we've got here at The Freedom Station. Kick off your mornings with Scott Adams. Bring you The Scott Adams Show weekdays from 9 a.m. until 11. We've got Dan the Man Bongino. Bring you the Dan Bongino Show weekdays from noon until 3 p.m. We've got the headliner, intellectual giant Ben Shapiro. Bring you the Ben Shapiro Show weekdays from 3 to 5 p.m. And finally, we love having him at the Freedom Station family. We've got Michael Knowles. Bring you the Michael Knowles Show weekdays from 5 to 6 p.m. So don't forget to tune in and show them some love. And with that, you know what time it is. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. Hit it, Russ. You know what time it is. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. We've got a very special guest joining us today. He's a repeat offender, as I like to call him. Guy Smith is the author of Guns and Control. He's not pro-gun or anti-gun. He's just pro-math and anti-BS. If you haven't checked out his book, you must. And if you haven't gone to gunfacts.info, you need to do that too. Guy Smith, thanks so much for joining us. No, thank you, man. It's always a delight to be with you. You know, we've had you on the program a couple of times and usually consists of Philly, Chris and I just peppering you with all kinds of questions about all the statistics and everything, because you're the man when it comes to this stuff. And I feel like today we have the opportunity to do a little bit of a longer segment here and really get to know Guy Smith, the man. So I'm excited about that part. But Guy, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about what you've been up to since the last time we've spoken? It's been uh, over a year. It has been over a year. There have been a lot of things going on, but mostly what we have been focusing at the Gun Facts Project is refining our visual presentations. What we understand about the market is that you can communicate a lot of information in one tiny little graph. People will get an immediate appreciation of what the reality of the situation is without having to do what I do, reading through reams and reams of academic studies to find Mm. little nuggets of info. And so, you know, like any other learning curve, you get better at something over time. And so we've gotten better at our visualizations and 
we also in the last year finally broke down and started getting active on Twitter. I mean, right up until about a year ago, we had, you know, like maybe 12 followers because we just never did anything there. And it's beginning to spiral out of control. Uh, when people get into arguments, they then tag us in their argument and, and say, do you have anything that you can help us with? And, you know, I jump in and fill in information and offend both sides, you know, whenever possible. <laughs> we love it. We love it. Now, it seems like, uh, you know, we've got this vicious cycle of every time something terrible happens, some crazy person goes out there and does something. Uh, we have all of these proposed measures and a lot of them don't seem to be maybe founded in any sort of statistical conclusions. And that's where you step in on a lot of this stuff because people make ridiculous claims from both sides as to what is and is not. And you're the one who actually digs through the facts. Isn't that true? That is. And, you know, that's been our mission from the beginning. Uh, I got into this because I was catching people telling really big fibs. And the more you dig into the data, the more you know, and the more fibs you start to identify. And, you know, it's like any other rabbit hole. Once you get down past the first couple of feet, you're lost for life. Um, and that's uh, been 25 years now that I've been pumping at this. And uh, I, I got a hell of a compliment not long ago. I won't mention the fellow's name, but if I did, you know, he'd be fairly well known to your audience. Mm. And he said, and because I said, you know, I've been doing this for 25 years. I said, pass the torch. And he said, no, <laughs> you're not. <laughs> I said, why not? And he said, think about it. You're the only person who can do this. I said, no, that's not true. There are plenty of criminologists and people who do this. And he said, no, you're the only person who knows how to read academic studies, grind through the numbers, plow through the CDC data, plow through the FBI uh, data, and wrap that all up in nice little visualizations and entertaining blog posts that people actually get a chuckle out of as they're reading about homicides. <laughs> and I said, you're right. I'm schizophrenic. I'm probably <laughs> You have a very unique set of skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Guy, we're used to seeing you in this capacity, um, but I want to learn a little bit more about how this all came to be. Uh, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Florida. I was born in Georgia, but, you know, family landed in Florida uh, in the same county that Kennedy Space Center is in mm. uh, when I think I was six and uh, did not move away from there until I was 30. Um I had an interesting upbringing because my father was one of McNamara's whiz kids, um, multi-degreed, uh, amazing critical thinker, did not know how to manage money, but, you know, that's, that's the way a lot of geniuses are. <laughs> and so I'm growing up, you know, in the shadow of Kennedy Space Center. Everyone we know in family circles were engineers and scientists and blah, blah, blah. And so I was gifted, you know, an inquiring mind, but uh, my father also gifted me with don't believe your own hype. You know, if you believe something, question that belief every day, every week, whatever you need to do, because, you know, a good portion of the time you're going to find out that you fooled yourself and you don't want to fool yourself because then that translates into fooling other people. And so what were you into growing up? Were you into guns? Was that something that was prevalent? You know, I, this surprises a lot of people, but I'm not a gunny. Um mm. Um, in fact, I, one of my favorite jokes is that the gunnies that I do know love taking me to the range so that they have somebody to laugh at. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, growing up in the South, I just always pictured guns as a tool. Mm. And, you know, just like a monkey wrench, you can misuse a gun or misuse a monkey wrench. I guarantee you, I guarantee you right now, somewhere on the face of the planet, somebody is driving a 10 penny nail with a monkey wrench. <laughs> 
<laughs> and, <laughs> and, and right now somebody is shooting, you know, a fellow gang banger with a nine millimeter. So mm -hmm. to me, it's just tools and people become the variable. So what kinds of things did uh, garner your attention though? Were you a sports guy? Were you somebody who was uh, very much engrossed in school? What were days like for a young guy, Smith? Uh, girls. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it was coming. <laughs> yeah. When, when you grow up in a beachside community in Florida in the 1970s, you know, uh, things are going to go wonderfully and disgustingly well for you. Um, <laughs> and, and all the girls were in string bikinis, and that was pretty much, you know, my focus. Um, I, it's somewhat unique. My father, again, you know, he was one of these guys who could never sit still. He always needed to be doing something. And so when I'm 10 years old and, you know, thinking about becoming a surfer, he says, we're getting into the cattle business. So there were literally days where I caught waves in the morning, chased cattle at night and chased girls in the evening. And, you know, that was, that was my teenage years. <laughs> it's quite the variety there. <laughs> was there occasionally I caught them. <laughs> was there any subject in school that you were particularly drawn to? Uh, not really. In fact, you know, up until my senior year of high school, I was a terrible student, you know, straight, you know, C average. Um, then a couple of magical things happened. Uh, I had a good friend. Hi, Don. Uh, he's probably not listening because he's certainly left a center. Um, but anyway, he taught me um, why I was having trouble with mathematics and cured it, you know, almost overnight. Uh, and my dad, noticing that my senior slough schedule was probably the worst one ever created, immediately enrolled me in um, advanced algebra, geometry, uh, chemistry, physics, you know, just any discipline. And that was the seed to getting me interested in the details. Uh, when you start assembling those particular tools, then you, you find ways of disassembling just about anything else. That's wild because it seems that, that would be a bad combination for senioritis, no? <laughs> it was the worst, but yeah. it was the best in the long run. Yeah. Wow. Do, do you remember what the problem was that he helped you crack as far as the math stuff goes? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I had taken Algebra 1 and, you know, I think I got C's and D's in it. And I was just telling Don, you know, I really don't get mathematics. And he said, guy, your problem is that, you know, you're both left and right brained and you have this artistic creative side of you and you have to understand mathematics is not creative. Mm -hmm. It is just rote formulas, learn the formulas, plug in the numbers, everything solves itself. And I said, it can't be that easy. And then I got into advanced algebra and it was that easy. And with the creativity side, were you a musician or an artist or anything like that? Yeah, um, and the big secret is that my little side work is that I'm a songwriter. I uh, got three albums out, and um, uh, I refer to my fan base, small as it is, as the uh, drinking class intelligentsia. Mm -hmm. um, these are the these are the people who are smart and don't mind crawling in the dirt for you know some gritty music. That's awesome. And did that love for music start when you were still in high school, or before, or? Well, it started in junior high school, and this is one of the funniest things in the world. My good friend Howard, uh, he and I were still in junior high, and he was turning me on to uh, Jethro Tull, and I was turning him on to the original Allman Brothers Band. Mm. And then he moves off to California. And then 40 years later, I'm in California and can't find him because uh, he has no digital footprint whatsoever. 
And when I finally track him down, he goes, oh, I left California about a year ago. It's like, oh, geez. So then life circumstances allows me to leave California. And I moved to right where my childhood buddy Howard is. Wow. And he and I, he was the first guy I ever strummed a guitar with. And we finally shared a stage together about three years ago. That's amazing. That's amazing. What what was your first guitar? What kind of guitar did you get? Oh, man. Some bargain basement nylon string thing that wouldn't stay in tune. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, my buddy Steve still has it. He said, I've thought about learning guitar. And I had better, better guitars by then. So I just handed him this one. I said, it's yours now. There you go. Well, you know, sort of pass the torch, so to speak. It's good mm-hmm. enough to teach to learn on and it'll be good enough for him. You don't usually come out of the box with a, a Taylor or a Martin or anything like that, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I will tell you a story about my late wife. This was charming because I do have a Martin. She had seen me perform and she said, oh, well, you know, she played the Irish harp and I kept kidding her, you know, that's not a good rock band instrument. <laughs> um, and she said, okay, well, I'm on, I want to learn how to sing. I want to learn, learn how to play guitar. And so we got her a perfectly decent, you know, ovation guitar. Hmm. And then one day she said, can I play your Martin? I said, of course you can play my Martin. She said, well, you treat it like a freaking firstborn child. I was a little intimidated to ask. And so I put it around her neck and, you know, handed her the pick. And I go off into the other room and I hear her strumming. I come back and tears are rolling down her face. And she said, this plays so easy and it's so beautiful sounding. I said, yeah, no. She said, I'm buying a Martin. I said, you've been playing guitar for six months. You are not buying a Martin. <laughs> so after we bought her Martin, um, <laughs> one month later. Of, of course, you know how that story ended. That's great. <laughs> she got Can't good say taste. no to the wife. <laughs> Can't say no. She's got good taste, right? I guess worst case scenario, if you're the guitar player and, and she doesn't like it, it always becomes part of your collection, right? Yep, that's a fact. <laughs> so when you're getting ready to graduate high school, what are your plans for moving on? Like, do you have anything in mind as far as a career at that point? Yeah, I did. And uh, to show people how embarrassingly old I am, um, you know, back when I was going into college, there were these things called stereo stores. Uh, and you know, they were for the audiophiles and the people who really, you know, wanted great sound in their house. And I said, you know, what I would really like to do is to own a stereo store because that's kind of my passion. But I said, okay, if you're going into college, what do you do? And, um, I said, you don't marry, you don't major in stereo store guy. (laughs) (laughs) It was oddly missing from the curricula. (laughs) I did get a a degree in management sciences because I went to a technical university. And the reason I went there was that my dad taught there and I got a bunch of free tuition as part of the deal. Um, but it was there where I studied quantitative analysis, statistics, uh, research methodology and design. And that's what eventually helped the whole GunFAX project was I had that foundation in how to do research, how to grind the numbers, how to uh, quantify just about anything and how to triple check all of your calculations along the way. So an accidental byproduct of an education targeting a industry that evaporated by the time I was out of college wow. eventually led to the GunFAX project. Oh, so the stereo store never happened? Never happened. Wow. Uh, Philly Chris worked at Circuit City. Didn't you, Chris? I, I did, actually. It's funny you mentioned that um, <clears throat> guy because, yeah, when I was young, I was totally into the whole stereo thing, and I'm probably like 20 years older than you, so I, I get the whole <laughs> <laughs> stereo you know, stereo shop thing. I, I love that stuff. And, yeah, actually, I did have the opportunity to work at Circuit City for several years in the stereo department and loved it. It was a great job playing music well, all day, 
you know, yeah. get to show people stereo. So yeah, fun stuff. Totally. Well, I I end up I ended up working at Circuit City too, but I oh, worked up at Rich at corporate headquarters. Oh yeah, I was in with there for training. I went there for training. Yeah, it was a good yeah. company. How long did you work for them? Uh, I worked for them for seven years when Rick oh, wow. Sharp was still, yeah. you know, at the helm. I was just going to say, uh, yeah. and I'll tell you a funny story about um, about that. When I was working there, mm -hmm. um, it, there was this secret project that they were not oh, telling anybody Karnak. about. It was Karnak. it was just called HRUC. Mm -hmm. That's all we knew. And some select people from IT were helping out on it, and they they weren't talking about it. Gotcha. And so one day at a at a meeting, somebody said, what does HRUC stand for? And Rick Sharp was the CEO. And I joked, it stands for Honest Rick's Used Cars. <laughs> That's exactly what it meant. And it was, and it was CarMax in Carmax, its planning yeah. phase. That's so, that's so crazy. Wow, that's interesting. We never... Um, hit on this topic before and we, we talked with you, but that's wild. How about that? Yeah, I remember <laughs> when they did that and I was, everybody was like, what are they doing? This is crazy. And now that's mm -hmm. around and, you know, Circuit City's gone. So yeah, go we, for see, it. we see how that worked out. In the business yeah, I guess you have to adapt in those industries, right? If the, the business is fading mm -hmm. due to reasons beyond your control. They actually reason. ruined the company, but that's a different story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they did. Were you yeah. there right out of college guy? What was that? Were you, were you there right out of college? Is your first job out of college, Circuit City, or no? My first job out of college was at Kennedy Space Center, and oh, he's an and astronaut this, too. This is getting better by the minute. <laughs> 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 no, but I did. I did get Sally Ride to laugh once. So that oh, okay. Was, <laughs> wow. My my first day on the job was when they sent up the fourth shuttle mission, and I thought, you know, what a welcome to Kennedy Space Center. They're going to launch a bird on the day you show up. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah, and uh, I was, uh, I think I was there for about seven years before I headed up to Richmond. Very cool. Wow. Mm. So you got a really diverse career. Yeah. Well, they hired me on there um, to program computers to do manpower planning. So, you know, it was one of the things that happened in college was that getting a business degree, they forced me to take computer programming 101, which I fought like a tiger. Really? Um, but I took it and I discovered that I was pretty good at it. Mm. And so that became another addiction. And so McDonnell Douglas said, let's hire this fellow because he understands the business part and the computer programming part. And we're basically getting two employees for one. So that's cool. I did that. And while I was there, I broke security on a NASA computer. Uh, <laughs> it. Were you looking up the, the faked uh, moon landing or? <laughs> no, that video is over in Vault 32. Oh, okay. Vault 32, of course. Of That's course. Right. Okay. Forgot. Well, the computer was just running so slow. And so I broke security on it, reconfigured it to run faster. And then I walked down to the end of the hall to tell the NASA administrator what I had done. Two weeks later, they moved me over to Canaveral Air Force Station, the other side, uh, and put me in charge of what's known as a Tempest Vault, which is a vault where they put computers in, and the vault is designed so that even radio waves cannot get in and out. Oh, um, wow. And they do that because people had figured out how to spy on computers by listening to frequencies. Yes, yes. yes. Um, is that Vault 33? So, Was that Vault 33? Vault 31. Sorry, sorry, I could just check in. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that... Mm. took me off in a different direction and you know by doing stuff like that when uh when it was time to leave florida circuit city said yeah you're our boy cool do you think that's sort of a a bold move breaking into <laughs> nasa in order to prove that um you're capable of doing so could that have ended very poorly for you it could have but i've discovered that 
in my life, at least, a lot of my stupid choices have good <laughs> outcomes. That makes, no, that makes no moral sense whatsoever. <laughs> it, does, it does work out that way. <laughs> I mean, it would seem that if you knew how to get in and that there was a vulnerability, that who better to help them fix that than the guy who was able to crack it, no? Right, right. That was their logic. I asked them, you know, why they you want to keep me you around? Yeah. There? Well, they wanted to keep me around, but they also figured that somebody who was looking at computers from that angle would probably be trying to understand how other people are looking at mm -hmm. those angles. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, except for the time I almost got, you know, a coworker shot by mismanaging the vault. Um, well, everything works spectacularly. <laughs> can, can you tell us that story? Yeah, you, can please, you, can you, can't, you can't drop that one and then yeah. let it leave us hanging. Well, th this will date us even further. Um, so in this Tempest vault, there were four separate rooms. And they do that because the person working on classified project one doesn't need to see what the person working on classified project number two is. And my job at the end of the day was to secure the vault. Um, and I would walk around and I would bang viciously on each one of the doors until people were locking up. And then once I made the rounds, if no one said, okay, I'm still working or something like that, I'd leave, I'd throw this bank vault like door and then I'd trip the motion detectors that, you know, look for anything happening inside. Mm. And I'd jump in my car and I'd leave. Well, this day I'm driving away and two Jeeps with a lot of large men in camos and uh, M16s are suddenly going back towards where I just left. Mm. I turned around thinking, well, this is at least going to be entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> and I get there and they kind of push me off to the side and I see them pointing guns at my vault. And I said, okay, this is not going to be good for me, whatever it is. Mm. And they open up the vault and out comes one of my coworkers with his hands up. This was the month that Sony released the Walkman. Oh. And so he was in his room with Led Zeppelin turned up to 11 <laughs> and did not hear me banging on the door. Well, that's what oh, so yeah. I turned on the motion detector and here come the trees with guns. Uh, I'm sorry, guy, but that's his own fault. That's his own fault. If he knew that roughly some period of time every day, guy is going to bang on the door and let us know it's time to lock up. You don't sit there with headphones on. No? Right, right. That's great. Well, my, my boss said, you are now in charge of rewriting this procedure in the manual. <laughs> How would you do it differently? I said, I will do a visual inspection of each room. <laughs> <laughs> or just don't be wearing head to everybody else. It's, it's not your fault, guy. I don't think they no, should have no. changed the rules on your end. They should no. have changed the rules on his end. Yeah, get the <laughs> headphones yeah. off. <laughs> After having M16s pointed at him, I think he made some alterations. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't need a rule to do that from there on out, did he? <laughs> no, no, he just needed a change of underwear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to ask, guy, uh, did he get the Walkman from from you did you have sort of a side stereo business going on or <laughs> <of> your car? <laughs> no, no, but that that would have been cute <laughs> the side hustle right maybe you couldn't open the stereo store but maybe a, a stereo operation going on over there maybe, uh, the nasa edition <laughs> yeah. that, that's <laughs> wild so then you end up at circuit city when you end up over there did they know that it was your initial plan to open up a stereo store and that's the the path that you had planned on going to I don't think it ever came up in conversation, uh, or at least not that I remember. Um, I just had developed a, a deep level of expertise on a particular mini mainframe computer system, and that's mm. where 100% of Circuit City's uh, transactions went through. It didn't matter whether it's sales or service. Uh, they said, you're in charge of these great big boxes now and okay. make sure they stay up as best as possible. 
you know, cool. we've got a couple of comments in here. It's ironic how that worked out that that's the industry you're planning to go through and yeah. it had nothing to do with the fact that you actually ended up in that industry. Yeah, a couple of the comments here, uh, Dagnabbit says, but it was Led Zeppelin. I guess he doesn't appreciate my comment as a, about he shouldn't have been listening to music. So <laughs> Led Zeppelin's the exception. I will, I will admit yeah. this guy. I've had this conversation with uh, other attorneys where I don't really trust anybody who doesn't like Led Zeppelin. Mm. If I hear that somebody doesn't like Led Zeppelin, I think something's up there. That's a, that's a red flag for me. Right. <laughs> and Randy says, I wonder if your coworker was listening to Stairway to Heaven at that point. <laughs> Two points for Randy. Great joke construction there. I'm going to make that the emoji for the show. The, uh, that's a good one. So then uh, Circuit City, you're there. They're both seven-year periods. You're one place yeah. for seven years and Circuit City for seven years. Do so you have yeah. like a specific seven-year plan that you, you had enough once you get to seven years, it's time to move on? Well, after that, I went out to California and I said, I'm only going to be here for seven years because um, it seemed to be a pattern, but I ended up there for 22. So oh, wow. go figure. Sometimes, sometimes even your best plans and uh, routines go awry. And what brought you out to California? What, what made you decide to go there? Well, I was burned out uh, on the techie track. Um, you know, when you get up to that level where you're managing mainframes for a major retailer, um, it starts to grind on you. And I was at a restaurant one night when I wasn't on call, did not have a pager, dating myself again, pagers. <laughs> um, and somebody else's pager, at a different table went off and I felt my stomach tighten up in knots. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, okay, now this job's become too stressful, do something else. And so I poked around in my industry, you know, cause I had this particular expertise and, um, a company out in the San Francisco Bay Area said, come out here and use that business degree of yours and market our software for us. I said, okay, let's fly out and have a chat. Um, and despite there being a big earthquake while I'm having lunch, you know, on the day of my interview, earthquake during lunch, no big deal. Huh? Yeah, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> Don't worry about well, we're that. sitting in a Chinese restaurant and, you know, we're having a conversation. All of a sudden, it feels like somebody has backed the biggest semi-truck in the world into the building. It just goes, boom. Wow. And and I'm white-knuckling the table, you know, this naive little Southern boy. And um, the other people who work for the company are throwing $5 bills on the table going, 5.2? 5.3? No, no. It couldn't be more than a 5.1. <laughs> and I'm going, we're all going to die. <laughs> I'm on a job interview here. I got to go home. <laughs> and, and by a few weeks in, you were throwing the $5 bills on the table back right. around too, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You get used to that real quick? You can get used to hell if you stay there. <laughs> and I was in San Francisco, and that's turned to hell. So, yeah. you know, I was going to say, not much of a difference, I suppose, right? right? No, not anymore. You spent a lot of years in San Francisco? Or yeah, were was, you in California for 20 years? Well, I was always in the San Francisco Bay Area. Gotcha. Um, and uh, 22, but I covered all the bases uh, from Pinole down to Santa Cruz. And uh, if you ever really want a nice Weirdsville, Santa Cruz is it. Uh, it's happily strange. Mm. <laughs> Did you notice the, the change over time in California during that couple of decades? I remember I was at this famous cigar shop in Beverly Hills, and it was a slow day, a weekday. And I was sitting there talking with the owner. And this is a place where you've got like Schwarzenegger's got his own box there. Stallone's got his own box there. So this is where the, the guys hang out. He's not exactly hurting for business, but he was explaining to me how over the last few years, he had had to downsize. They used to have a second storefront. 
and you know the, they had to carry fewer cigars because uh, the, the taxes were so out of control and he was just talking about how the government had made it very difficult for them to stay in business and me being a wise guy <laughs> not from california wanted to start to inquire and i said really uh did you notice have you noticed anything in the government that's that's changed over the last few decades in california <laughs> is there is there some kind of trend that made that we think we can maybe figure it out <laughs> i don't know where this guy stands on the, the side of the aisle but how, did you start to notice that change as you were as you were there oh yeah without a doubt um when i first got there if you wanted to encounter homeless people um you basically came up out of the bart station at pal street and then you walked up uh, for a few blocks and most of the rest of the city did not have a serious, you know, uh, homeless problem. You could go up, um, through the tenderloin, uh, you know, providing it wasn't three o'clock in the morning and you would feel reasonably safe. You'd see a lot of strange people, but you know, nothing ridiculous was happening. And by the time I left, the junkies were shooting up, um, you know, uh, not no longer in the alleyways. They were just down the streets, mm -hmm. uh, jacking. Uh, people, you know, pooping on the sidewalks, uh, leftover syringes in the sandbox at the playground. Uh, wow. That was unheard of when I first got there. Um, and I think part of it is that San Franciscans, you know, from the very beginning, because the town started off, it's just a miserable, you know, explosion of undesirable people mm -hmm. <laughs> flooding there all at once to find gold. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've always had this habit of, we're going to overlook anything that isn't just outright fatal. Um, but it caught up to them. Uh, it, it, their level of tolerance for bad behavior has gotten to the point where it's now becoming an endemic disease with inside the city. And Los Angeles is actually outpacing them. Mm. Mm -hmm. And being out in California, I'd imagine the exposure to firearms from a legal standpoint uh, it was not something you run into everywhere. It's not like you run into gun owners everywhere you go. Uh, was your exposure few and far between by that point? Uh, you know, you could tell by going out there that there was this generalized caution um, among anyone who owned a gun uh, mm -hmm. about who they talked to, how they talked to, uh, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, 22 years also reprograms somebody like me. And so I leave, I come out to North Carolina I decide I'll go to a gun show and introduce myself to people because, you know, I've got some notoriety, you know, among gun owners. And I walk into a gun show here and it's wall to wall AR-15s all the way around. And I flinch for a second going, this looks weird. And I, it took yeah. me a while to remember that there was a time in my life before when that wasn't weird at all. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that's strange how you get conditioned over time to that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So so when does the you're out there doing marketing for software is what you said? Yeah. I did that for for other companies for just about seven years. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing and, a pattern here, guys. <laughs> yeah. And then I decided I was just tired of working for other people, so I founded a marketing strategy consultancy, and you know, made even more money than I was making working for you know one-off companies, and uh, also that got me a lot of extra free time to do things like snowboarding and whatnot. Cool. Oh wow! And that lasted. That lasted it for exactly seven years, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and here's yeah, well, I got up to year fourteen, okay. and once again, I said, "Okay, it's time to leave." The moment that I can find a company who will hire me and put me on an airplane just to travel anywhere in the world, I'm off. And like the day after I made that decision, I meet my wife. <laughs> oh, wow. And so I end up there, you know, for the full 22. Wow, that's amazing. 
she did seven 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 fourteen yeah <laughs> there is something about <laughs> your life's like a football score right <laughs> something going on with the numbers i think if i ever go to a casino i'll find the craps table and see how many consecutive sevens I <laughs> exactly so at what point do you decide to get into the firearm statistics and everything yeah it happened 25 years ago so that means that you know i started working in this before i got out to california and I think going out to California just, you know, accelerated things. Um, and uh, the reason was, you know, is that when you go into that kind of environment where the entire political class has a series of misconceptions about firearms, firearm owners, blah, 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 mm -hmm. blah, blah, you know, you find yourself not trying to be pro-gun, but just trying to tell people, no, no, that's not the reality of the situation. And so when that happens, you know, just uh, doubling down and then doubling down again, and eventually, you know, stuff starts happening. And the whole history of the Gun Facts Project was I had these bits of data and I started putting it into a cheat sheet file, you know, so I could copy and paste and do whatever I had to. And my friend Jason said, can I have a copy of that? <laughs> I mm. said, sure. About a week later, he goes, can I give a copy of that to everyone I know? I said, okay. And then somebody he gave it to said, can you get that to me in a PDF format? Hmm. I said, okay, something weird is happening here. And so I started slowly formalizing it. And for the first few years, GunFAX was just, you know, a very well done cheat sheet that, you know, hmm. people handed around between each other. Cool. And so I started getting more and more requests from people saying, can you analyze this? Can you look into this? Can you, you know, at least you have run your spell checker once before you publish your PDF. And I said, okay, there's a hunger out in the marketplace for reliable information. And so I started asking the program people, you know, because I'm, I'm not going to cater to anybody, but I said, look, you guys have the NRA. What, why are you asking me for data? And they said, if we ever said the NRA says, nobody's going to listen to us right and i said okay so what makes me special there's got to be other people you know who are you know doing some deep analysis and they said the only people who are doing that are the criminologists and nobody has time to read those dense heavy uh, sleep inducing uh, academic papers right wow so you decided you're going to do it for them break it all down I didn't decide to do it. I just kept, you know, it's kind of like trying to leave the mob. People kept right, trying okay. to get back in. <laughs> hey, you got the update over there? Oh, well, at some point you had to have made a decision that we're going to expand this because it goes from a cheat sheet to, you know, several published works that are hmm. worldwide famous sort of thing. So uh, when, when did you decide, okay, I'm really going to take this seriously. It's going beyond the whole cheat sheet thing. I wish I remember, but I remember the turning point was when web technology had developed to the point where it was cheap and reliable and much more flexible than passing around a PDF. Mm -hmm. And we co-produced both the website and the PDF for several years. And I kept watching the analytics and eventually got to the point where next to nobody was downloading the PDF, but the page hits on the website were just, you know, continuing to go up and up and up. And so we discontinued the PDF the moment we got the website into a shape that would reformat itself for anyone's cell phone. Uh, that to me was a big criteria. I want somebody, if they're talking to a politician and the politician just throws some equine effluvium into the conversation, I want them to be able to pull out their phone and go, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any uh, greatest hits of misinformation 
that you often think of, like how much uh, time you got? <laughs> <laughs> I've got a lot of time to give about, me. Probably about seven years. <laughs> seven years. <laughs> <laughs> Two points. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of them, but um, I, I need to beat up on Gavin Newsom. Okay. Um, and well-deserved, too. Uh, and one of the reasons I want to beat up on him was that I was living in San Francisco during his political ascendancy. Uh, so I know the character. I've seen him from his, you know, larval stage, if you will. Mm -hmm. And um, Gavin has exactly two talents, uh, propaganda and being smug. And he's excellent <laughs> at both of those. Now, he's out there running around the country telling everyone that California has low gun death rates because of their laws. And... Uh, this proves that he's either never studied the subject or he's just, you know, spouting off at the lip because, you know, it's a, you know, for him, a good sound point in trying to build a base for a presidential run. So here's the deal. Um, when you look at firearm homicides, California is statistically no different than Colorado and Kansas. Colorado has gun control light. Kansas, they practically hand you an AR-15 at the visitor center on the highway. Um, <laughs> but they all have the same gun homicide rate. So, you know, statistically speaking, California gun laws have no effect on that. Their total gun death rate, which includes all manner of catching bullets, is lower. It's almost exclusively lower in suicides. Now, here's the interesting thing. We proved a long time ago, and this is getting back to what you ask, is there a greatest hit? Mm -hmm. um, we proved a long time ago that there's no statistical correlation between the availability of a gun and the suicide rate. We went international on our study because there's great variability between ownership rates and also all the cultural attitudes towards suicide. Mm. So if guns were a determinant variable, you would see some consistency across cultures and across, you know, relative availability. Uh, for the number nuts in your audience, the R squared correlation is, if I remember correctly, 0 0.02, which means basically no correlation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. um, so why is California's suicide rate lower? Well, all forms of suicide in California are lower. <clears throat> gun, excuse me, gun suicides are significantly lower, but so is suffocation, so is poisoning. Mm -hmm. um, death by falling is astronomically higher but if you've ever driven down the pacific coast highway and seen all those cliffs sure. or that wonderful golden gate bridge that they put there just for suiciding uh, <laughs> then, then you know there's some other factors involved there um so the suicide rate is low so why is california's suicide rate lower the gun laws don't seem to have any particular mechanism they've had waiting periods going all the way back to the early 20th century so that's not a great big variable comes down to two things culture demographics. In America, when it comes to firearm suicides, uh, they are heavily skewed to old, white, rural men. Right. I mean, I can show you the chart. It just simply does one of these hockey sticks straight up when you get to that particular demographic. Just so happens in terms of percentage of white population, California is near the bottom of the list. When it comes to the number of people age 65 and older, California is near the bottom of the list. And 40% of their population is all in four major metro areas. Mm -hmm. So it's a highly urbanized area. So the number of old white rural males in California is extremely low. So the gun suicide rate just falls along with that. The other thing though is culture, and it comes on two factors here. One, 
there are a lot of different foreign cultures in California that you don't find in the same percentages elsewhere, especially Eastern cultures, where the attitude towards suicide, you know, is largely uh, negative. Uh, there's some elements of Japanese society, you know, where it's considered honorable, but, you know, among the Thai and the Cambodian and the Chinese and blah, 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 not, not normally a thing that's done. The other factor is religion. I went out and I got a table of all the states and what percentage of their population was Catholic. And we know from the catechism that suicide is a great big no-no among the Catholics. Mm -hmm. Statistically speaking, the more Catholic your state is, the lower your suicide rate is. So California, founded by the Spanish, they built all those Catholic missions all the way up to San Francisco. Mm. Then the Irish, and I married into a San Francisco Irish family, they come over and they bring Catholicism with them. The Catholic rate in California and in Massachusetts, both extremely high. Suicide rate in those states, both extremely low. So when Gavin's out there saying it's our laws that have reduced gun deaths, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Mm. Seriously ignorant on the subject. His demographics and his Catholicism. <laughs> I once heard that the chances of a black woman in an urban area killing herself with a shotgun is almost zero statistically, <laughs> something of that nature. And that kind of lines up with what you're saying. It's more people, old white guys in rural areas, right? Yeah. Well, as a matter of fact, firearm suicides among women in general are much lower. Hmm. Um I talked to a detective once, you know, this gets into some gory subjects, but, sure, you know, right. I said, you know, statistically that I find it interesting that women, you know, don't commit many gun suicides. And he said, they don't like to leave a mess. <laughs> and, and, and I started to laugh. I said, oh, that's funny. And no, he was dead serious. He said, some women have survived suicides and told why they were, you know, suicidal. And, you know, some researchers said, did you have a gun in the house? And, and more than a handful said, yeah, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, you know, somebody has to clean that up. Perfect, wow. perfect correlation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite clips of all time on the Mike G in the Morning program is Guy Smith talking about the Hemlock Society and <laughs> substitution of means. <laughs> do you want to touch on that real quick for those of us who haven't heard that one? <laughs> uh, well... Uh, I'll have to remember what I said, but um, uh, well, those of us who are gray of hair and long of tooth will remember the Hemlock Society. They were an organization who produced a handbook every year on how to kill yourself. Um, thankfully, they went out of business. Um, but there's a website out there, which I will not name, um, and they pretend to be a suicide prevention website. Uh, no, it's a modern-day Hemlock Society handbook. Um yeah. And I ended up finding them because I had to try to understand why there were this many suffocation suicide attempts, but only this many suicide suffocation deaths. And Googling led me to their site, and they had just this amazing page about how long it takes you to suffocate, depending on what size plastic bag you chose. <laughs> I said, oh, this, this is grim. But there, there was one guy who managed a successful suicide after putting a 30-gallon 
yard garbage bag around his head. And they said, took him about 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very inefficient way to go. Don't do it that way. Here, here's a better way. Is it? <laughs> Don't do it at all, but by all means, that's your last choice. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's wild. And people find other ways. The point is, though, what you were talking about, people find other ways to kill themselves if they want to kill themselves. Is that correct? Yeah, it's called substitution of means. And it's interesting that that phrase appears in criminology and in sociology and psychology. Um, when we did our international study, uh, we looked at all countries. We looked at World Health Organization suicide data, uh, small arms survey, gun ownership data, blah, blah, blah. Um, and we made two comparisons to try to illustrate this. Uh, first, we compared the United States to the country that was the most similar to us in culture, and that's Canada. Uh, we have the same Judeo-Christian background. We have the same immigrant culture. We have the same frontier attitude. One of the best rodeos you can find is in Calgary, not Dallas. Uh, the, the two big differences between us is that Canadians are politer and Americans prefer beer that has flavor. Now, because of those cultural similarities, you would imagine there would be similarities in the attitudes towards suicide. And in the year of our study, the suicide rate between those two countries was nearly identical, 10.1 uh, in Canada, 10.3 in the United States. And given the bleak winters in the Western provinces, I'm really surprised their suicide rate isn't higher. Um, <laughs> but they own one third the number of guns per capita than the US does. So guns obviously are not a determinant variable. So I then compared the United States with whatever industrialized country had the highest suicide rate that year, and it happened to be Lithuania. They had a suicide rate that was three times as high as the United States, hmm. but they own only 2% the number of guns per capita that the United States does. Much higher suicide rate, much lower gun ownership rate. Hmm. Again, no correlation. Uh, for people with morbid curiosity, suicidal Canadians choose poison and suicidal Lithuanians hang themselves. Wow. Mm. It's like a cultural thing, some sort of cultural difference. Uh, I believe, I believe yeah. so. There's, uh, um, and it's also possibly a matter of convenience. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, Canadians probably being a bit like Americans are, are less into the horror show. Um, you know, and if you, um, have a swinging body in a bedroom, somebody's going to find it and that's going to be, you know, traumatic. Yeah. And maybe that doesn't matter to Lithuanians as much. Maybe life there is grim enough that, uh, you know, somebody hanging in a closet, you know, isn't that big of a surprise. Right, right. That's nuts. That's nuts. Uh, magazine capacity is another one that comes out there pretty often as far as the misinformation, isn't it? It is. Um, we had some fun with that. We, we have a database of mass public shootings um, mm. so that we can, you know, grind numbers whenever we feel like it. And how do we define uh, mass shooting, mass public shooting? Let's take a little detour here. Okay. <laughs> a long time ago, uh, at least back in the late 1990s, but I've gotten some clues that it happened even earlier. Criminologists agreed on a definition of mass public shooting. Please note you need all three words in there, mass public shooting. Um, so there's consensus on a definition for that. And it's four or more people killed in a single event, not including the perpetrator, um, in a public place, or at least a semi-public place, like a workplace. Mm. Um, there's an organization with a bad reputation called the GVA, the Gun Violence Archive. Um, they created out of thin air their own definition of what they call mass shooting, which has no basis in criminology whatsoever. 
which then inspired everybody and his brother to come up with yet a different definition of mass shooting. Um, and depending on, you know, whose definition you're using on the year that, you know, Al Jazeera, of all people, decided to do a nice little infographic on this, uh, you had anywhere from four mass public shootings or 865 mass shootings. So, wow. Wow. so this is this is a significant propaganda ploy. Um, and um, but getting back to magazine capacities, we have our own database of mass public shootings. Gotcha. So we looked at magazine capacities. We looked at uh, assault weapons uh, and we mapped those to the total uh, body counts uh, in each of these events. And what we discovered <clears throat> was that there's a little bell curve. And. For high capacity magazines, I hate the term, but we'll call that 15 or more rounds. Um, most of them, 80% of them, fit in the same bell curve as somebody using a handgun with a seven round or a 10 round magazine. Hmm. And I said, wow, that's that's interesting. Why would an assault weapon or uh, assault weapon with a 30 round clip achieve the same body count as a handgun with a 10 round clip? And so that taught us right away that the weapon and the magazine really weren't determinant variables. So we asked, what is the determinant variable? And the determinant variables come down to the cattle pin scenario and planning. We coined the term the cattle pin scenario. And I hate to say this publicly, but mass public shooters are aware of this, not by name, but there have been people who have written manifestos who have, you know, gotten caught before they went on binge. And they were all saying things like, I'm looking for a confined space that's crowded full of people, et cetera. So a cattle well, you'd have to be really, really stupid to not figure that out. So I don't think, you, you know, in uh, bottom line is what I'm saying is perhaps you discovered this, but I, I don't think that you're providing them with anything to foster their efforts by saying that, if that makes sense. I, I agree. Um, I'm just always hesitant to throw anything out there that might give somebody a bad idea. Gotcha. Um, but anyway, um, you have the cattle pen scenario, and we define that as uh, a large number of people in a confined space. That's a requirement. And then either or both of the two following requirements, the first one being few or no, few or narrow exits, so you can't flee the scene very well. Hmm. and few or no barriers to hide behind. Now, the mother of all cattle pen scenarios was the Las Vegas country music shooting. The venue, the outdoor venue, was designed to hold 22,000 people. They sold 22,000 tickets. Wow. Let's assume that there are a couple hundred no-shows or people who were late, whatever. Um, but that's still, and I measured my physical body and did the math, and basically to get 22,000 people in that venue, everyone has to not breathe deeply. You, you are packed in that tightly. Right. And that's why the body count for that event is the highest on record in the United States. Uh, it was almost the perfect cattle pen scenario. The exits were designed to make sure that people didn't take alcohol out of the venue and also narrow so people couldn't you know, get in without a ticket. And the only barriers were the stage and a couple of beer stands. That was it. It's like a disaster waiting to happen if somebody's got ill intentions, right? Yeah. So the same thing applied to magazine capacities. Um, <clears throat> cattle pen scenario, planning your event. And again, Las Vegas was so amazingly well planned. Uh, that's kind of scary. 
But, you know, most of the recent mass public shootings, uh, the school uh, out in Tennessee, I believe it was, uh, the, um, uh, the workplace, um, geez, uh, Kentucky, all of these were planned. Um, the, guy, the perps uh, thought about how they were getting in, where they were going to go inside the building, who they were going to target, uh, and what kind of uh, situations they could create. One of the other big cattle pin scenarios was Virginia Tech, 32 dead, done with handguns with the magazines that shipped with the handguns. You know, mm. the guy did not have exotic hardware, but he had these closed classrooms, which only had one door. Uh, he chained uh, the emergency exits. So if anyone did get out of the classrooms, they couldn't go any further than the end of the hallway. So he found and created a cattle pin scenario. So this is where it gets interesting. One guy with a handgun in regular capacity magazines, 32 dead. Some guy walked into a bank in Florida, I believe it was, with an AR-15 in uh, jungle clips, 30-round clips taped together so he could spin them over. He only got four. Why? No one was in the bank at 10 o'clock that morning. That's he, it. You know, it was an empty place, and there were barriers. All the tellers jumped behind the counters. So, um, yeah, the, the weapon and the magazine capacity are only – interesting when you have somebody planning out a cattle pin scenario is there any part of it that plays into whether they'd be met with armed resistance so gun-free zones things of that nature what i will note is that the gun-free zone push did not have the intended effects mm -hmm. um they were originally driven by school uh environments and I've charted the number of school shootings uh, against when those laws were passed. You know, the school shootings went up. So, you know, gun-free zones did not have that intended effect. What I will say is I don't think perps specifically look for a gun-free zone. Uh, they tend to be driven by grievances, if not a fair amount of psychosis. Um, and so they're on a mission. They have a particular idea about who needs to die. Uh, or at least what venue? I mean, the the um, how politically correct do I have to be here? The woman slash man slash trans who shot up the school in um, Tennessee, I think it was. Mm. Um, um, the animal who school. shot up the kid. The animal. Yeah. You can say the animal. There you go. Who shot animal. Up the animal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, you know, she was being canceled by somebody who you know was an administrator at the school. She supposedly went to the school. Uh, there were some baked-in grievances probably in there. Mm -hmm. So I have a feeling that perps pick a location out of something based more in their grievances, and maybe they do a checklist and they go, okay, is, you know, am I going to meet with any return fire? And if it's listed as gun-free zone, they probably got in there ahead that, you know, I'm probably reasonably safe. I'm probably not going to meet up with armed resistance. At least for a little bit until the police show up, right? That's Unless you're in Uvalde. That's all the time we got for today. Stick around for We the People, the Constitution Matters, Pastor David, Whitney, Professor Philadelphia, and I'll be joining as your legal analyst. We miss you, Ellie. Daddy loves you.